When Paul began his third missionary journey, he made his way through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, regions that he had visited previously, and he ministered in the churches that he had planted there, strengthening the disciples, so says Acts 18.23. But Paul did not stay there long because he intended to push on into Asia Minor and especially to its capital city of Ephesus. Previously, on Paul's second missionary journey, he had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit from entering Asia, instead passing by on his way to Macedonia and Achaia. But now, three years later, Paul sensed the liberty to go, and so he intended to go to Asia Minor, to go to Ephesus, and to establish that city as his base of operations for all of Asia Minor. This is where Luke picks up the narrative in Acts chapter 19. Luke records, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. What are we to make of this passage? It would appear that these 12 men are diaspora Jews, that is, Jews of the dispersion, Jews from outside of Israel, that in some way or another had heard of John the Baptist and of his ministry of repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. Now, although John had died some 25 years earlier, halfway across the Mediterranean world in Israel, it ought not surprise us that the effect of John's ministry had reached as far as Ephesus. The first century Roman world was a very mobile society, and it is quite possible that these men had traveled to Israel perhaps during one of the pilgrimage festivals, and had heard of this wild-eyed prophet out in the wilderness who was proclaiming the imminent coming of the Messiah. Or maybe they had grown up in Israel where they had heard John preach and only later as adults had moved to Ephesus. Or maybe one of John's disciples had emigrated to Ephesus after John's death and had continued to spread his message there. But whatever the case, these 12 men had believed John's message and they had received John's baptism, a baptism of repentance and preparation. They had repented of their sins and they were preparing themselves for the coming one, for the Messiah whom John proclaimed. In other words, they were old covenant Jews awaiting a new covenant Messiah. 
why they had not yet heard of Jesus or embraced Jesus as that Messiah is anyone's guess. But Ephesus was a big city and Paul had not yet visited and the church there was not yet fully established. Now I begin this morning with this passage in Acts 19 because it illustrates in narrative form the point that Paul expounds in today's passage in Romans chapter 8. So with this With this passage in Acts 19 in front of you, I want to point you to three points of attention. First, note that the reception of the Holy Spirit is the hallmark of New Covenant Christianity. For Paul, receiving the Holy Spirit meant that one was a Christian. Not having received the Holy Spirit meant that one was not. It was as simple as that. So when Paul found out that these 12 men had not received the Holy Spirit, indeed had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit, he immediately deduced that that they had never heard of Christ and had never experienced Christian conversion. Second, I want you to note that Paul expected that if they had received the Holy Spirit, they would have known it. In other words, he expected them to be able to answer the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did something happen to you? Paul evidently thought that the reception of the Holy Spirit made an observable difference in one's life, such that one knew whether one possessed the indwelling of the Spirit. And then thirdly and finally, I want you to note that Paul closely connects the reception of the Holy Spirit with baptism. Baptism in the name of Jesus signifies the reception of the Spirit. If you have been baptized, that was to show forth that you have been made new, that you have been buried with Christ and have been raised to walk in the newness of life, that your sins have been washed away and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. Baptism in water signifies baptism in the Spirit. Therefore, if they have not received the Holy Spirit, they must not have been baptized into Christ. So Paul questions them, into what then were you baptized if you haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit? And that's when he finds out that they had heard only of John's message and they had received only of John's baptism. They had been awaiting the Messiah, preparing themselves for his coming, but the Messiah had already come some 25 years earlier in Israel. So these 12 men had a faith of sorts, But it was an old covenant faith and it was an old covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. What they needed was the new covenant gospel. They needed to hear that the Messiah whom they awaited had now come and they needed to embrace this Messiah by faith and they needed to be baptized in his name. Only then would they receive the Holy Spirit, which they did when Paul laid his hands upon them. So this story in Acts 19 illustrates the main point of this morning's sermon in Romans chapter 8. The main point being that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is the distinguishing mark of a New Testament Christian. 
Just as we saw in Acts 19, so in Romans 8, Paul clearly expects that all who are authentically indwelt by the Holy Spirit will actually experience the Holy Spirit's ongoing ministry in their lives as they actively and intentionally rely upon the Spirit's power. So if I were to form this into a thesis statement, it would be this, which is written at the top of your bulletins. Only those who are personally indwelt by the Spirit and powerfully led by the Spirit to presently walk by the Spirit will be raised by the Spirit to everlasting life on the last day. That's Paul's point in Romans 8, 9 to 14. Only those who are personally indwelt by the Spirit and powerfully led by the Spirit to presently walk by the Spirit will then be raised by the Spirit on the last day. Therefore, it is imperative that I ask you the same question that Paul asked those 12 men in Ephesus. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, we're going to begin by focusing upon the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within every believer. Okay, my main point says only those who are personally indwelt by the Spirit will be raised by the Spirit unto everlasting life on the last day. I get that from verses 9 through 11 of Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, before we work our way through these verses, I need to make some, some notes. I need to give some definitions. Okay? First, Paul uses spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Christ interchangeably in this passage, all referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. He is called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ because he proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So don't let this confuse you. He's not talking about multiple spirits. There is one Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Second, there seems to be no real difference between Paul saying that the Spirit of God dwells in you, verse 9, and saying that Christ is in you. Verse 10, normally Paul speaks of the indwelling of the Spirit rather than Christ's indwelling, but I think he's speaking of the same reality. In other words, to be indwelt by the Spirit is to have Christ in you. So perhaps it's better for us to speak of Christ dwelling in us by the Spirit. Third, There seems to be little difference between the believer being in the Spirit, verse 9a, and the Spirit being in you, verse 9b. 
Now again, those, those expressions are used interchangeably so that it doesn't matter whether we say you are in the Spirit or the Spirit is in you. Both point to the truth of an intimate communion which the Spirit has with those who believe. And then finally, when you think of the Spirit dwelling in you, you shouldn't think in spatial terms as if the Spirit took up residence some sort of physical location in your physical body. You shouldn't think that the omnipresent God is in you and not everywhere else, which he surely is. Rather, I think we should regard the indwelling of the Spirit as the Spirit's acting upon and within your soul to mold it, to shape it, to form it, to sweetly dominate it, to use Luther's language, in a manner which he does not do for those who do not believe. Okay? The nature of the Spirit's indwelling presence is as mysterious as the nature of the Spirit himself, but the effect of his indwelling is comprehensible, and it is significant. All right, so with those four notes in mind, let me give you four truths that emerge out of verses 9 through 11. Truth number one, I want you to take note that to have the Spirit of Christ is to belong to Christ. Verse 9b, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit dwelling within him. To be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The personal indwelling of the Spirit is the essential condition of belonging to Christ. Simply put, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Jesus. He's not your Savior. He's not your Redeemer. He does not claim you as His own. You do not belong to Him. What it means to have the Spirit and what effect the Spirit has upon one's life, we're going to get to momentarily. For now, I simply want you to to grasp the gravity and the seriousness and the relevance of the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because it's the same thing as asking, are you really a Christian? We'd better be sure of that answer because Paul is going to make clear in verse 11 that if you don't have the Spirit, you will not be raised to everlasting life on the last day. Second, those in whom the Spirit dwells, Paul says, are not in the flesh. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells In you, verse 9a. Now here we begin to see what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit. Last week, we learned what it means to be in the flesh from verses 5 through 8. Just to jog your memory, it means to be so dominated by your inherited sin nature that, number one, your thoughts are occupied by sin, verse 5. Number two, your life produces death, verse 6. 
Number three, you are opposed to God's rule and reign in your life both willingly, verse 7a, and number four, by nature, verse 7b to 8. Okay? That's what it means to be in the flesh. But if you're indwelt by the Spirit, Paul says in verse 9, you're not in the flesh. In fact, you are in the Spirit, which means, you just take those four statements and, and, and turn them around. If you're in the Spirit, it means that your mind is occupied by the good, the true, and the beautiful, verse 5. Your life produces life and peace, verse 6. You embrace the rule and the reign of God over your life willingly, verse 7, and by nature, verse 8. That's what it means to be in the Spirit. There is no such thing as a person indwelt by the Spirit who is in the flesh, which means there is no such thing as a Christian who is in the flesh, who characteristically bears those four marks of the fleshly person. You see where we're getting at here in Romans 8? Paul does not define Christianity in the way that we so often define Christianity. I don't know how many times in evangelistic meetings I've heard people ask, the, pre- the preacher will ask, have you ever accepted Jesus into your heart? Have you ever prayed to receive Christ? That's not the way Paul approaches this question. He, and, he asks, are you in the Spirit? Do you walk by the Spirit? Is the Spirit of God in you? Are you led by the Spirit? Do you see where Paul's focus is? It's not upon a past tense decision of your own will. It's on a present tense activity of the divine spirit within your life. That's where you need to be basing your assurance. Truth number three. Those indwelt by the spirit have spiritual life within a body of death. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This verse reveals the the lie of that teaching which says that physical healing was included in the atonement and is therefore available to all who have sufficient faith. That is not what Paul says here in verse 10. Paul says that even if... Christ is in you, which means even if you are an authentic Christian, your body is still dead because of sin. Perhaps better, your body is still dying because of sin. In other words, physical healing, physical glorification is not yet a part of the Spirit's activity in your life. You will, as a spirit-indwelt Christian, continue to live in a body of death. You ought to just set that in your mind now. You will live in a mortal body beset by weakness, disease, decay, and death. Paul says this is because of sin, meaning, I think, the sin of Adam reaching all the way back to Romans 5.12. Nevertheless, though your body, your, your external physical nature is diseased and decayed and dying, within you, 
The Holy Spirit is overflowing with life. This is precisely why believers in nursing homes may not be able to move a muscle from their bed, but they are a fountain of life and joy and peace and patience and kindness to all who come in. It's because of verse 10. The Spirit is in you, overflowing with spiritual life because of righteousness. Meaning, I think, back in Romans 5, the righteousness of Christ, which secured and purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit for you. All right, so verse 10 describes the present state of all those in whom Christ dwells by His Spirit. Inside bodies of death, which are beset by frailty, disease, and death, we have a fountain of life. The Holy Spirit, which bubbles up and produces fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the reality of which Jesus promised in John chapter 7 when he said, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds, now he said this of those who were to, or he said this about the one whom, the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now, as Paul is writing... Jesus has been glorified, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he has poured out his spirit upon the church. Therefore, a Christian is one in whom these rivers of living water flow, even contained within a body of death. Fourth, Those indwelt by the Spirit will be raised from the dead to everlasting life. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Unless Jesus returns first, you will experience death. Your mortal body will one day betray you, it will break down, it will succumb to some illness or injury, and it will cease to function. It will be hard, it will be difficult, it will be scary. But you will persevere unto death and through death because of the Spirit's life within you. Your immortal soul will be received into everlasting glory in God's presence in heaven, even while your mortal body disintegrates in the grave. But then on the last day, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead on the third day will awaken your body on the last day. Your mortal body will be transformed to become like Christ's. The perishable will become imperishable. The mortal will become immortal. And you will rise body and soul unto eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth if 
the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If not, you will still be raised. But it will be a resurrection to judgment and everlasting perdition. So I ask you again the same question Paul asked those 12 men in Ephesus. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? For only those who are personally indwelt by the Spirit will be raised by the Spirit unto everlasting life on the last day. But lest we think that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit was a static thing, okay, a mere positional reality, Paul goes on to speak of the dynamic effect which the Holy Spirit has upon those in whom he dwells. This also harkens back to Acts 19 and Paul's expectation that the Ephesian disciples would know if they had received the Holy Spirit because it would have made an observable difference in their life. They would have been changed. That observable difference may not be as immediately noticeable to us as it was to them, for they were speaking in tongues and prophesying, but over time, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit will most certainly effect a radical transformation of your life, such that the presence of the Spirit or His absence in your life will be unmistakable. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. First thing I want you to note is that Paul makes the very same one-to-one correlation between being led by the Spirit of God and being a son of God, verse 14, that he does in verse 9 between having the Spirit of Christ and belonging to Christ. In other words, there are no sons of God who do not have the Spirit of God, just like there are no Christians who are not indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Assuming then that to belong to Christ means the same thing as being a son of God, and it does, this must mean that being indwelt by the Spirit is the same thing as being led by the Spirit. In other words, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Spirit does not indwell anyone without also leading them. The Spirit doesn't just sit on the recliner of your soul and kick back. He is active, powerfully active in transforming you into the image of Christ. Therefore, if you are not led by the Spirit, you are not indwelt by the Spirit. Therefore, you do not belong to Christ and you are not a son of God. Stated another way, you cannot claim to be a Christian if you do not experience the dynamic working of the Spirit in your life. To be a Christian is not only to be indwelt by the Spirit, it is to be led by the Spirit. But that raises the question of what does the Spirit lead the sons of God to do and how does He do it? 
Well, the what can be stated both positively and negatively. The positive, okay, what does the Spirit lead the sons of God to do, is given back in verse 4. So jump up to verse 4, where Paul stated that God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned our sin in the flesh of his Son, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit of God leads the sons of God, all of them, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. He leads them to righteousness in their daily, actual lives. What does this righteousness look like? Well, again, I'm going to point you to Romans 13, 8, where I think the answer is found. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, In order that you might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, by walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is synonymous with saying, in order that you might walk in love for your neighbor. The Spirit leads his people into love. And love is the essence of the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Spirit leads the sons of God into love-saturated righteousness. He leads them into holiness. An unholy, unloving person is not being led by the Spirit and is therefore not a child of God. So let's take this truth and let's apply it to our question of the day. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How might you know? Well, has he made you more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled? Have you seen that development taking place in your life since you believed on Christ? In other words, is he making you holy? Angry, bitter, hot-tempered, unforgiving, divisive, greedy, deceitful people enslaved to their passions and their appetites are not led by the Spirit of God and therefore are not the sons of God and therefore are not indwelt by the Spirit of Christ and therefore will not be raised on the last day. If positively the Spirit leads his people to put on love and holiness, then negatively, okay, so he's adding things into our life, but he's also leading us to take things away out of our life. Negatively, he leads his people to put sin to death. This is verses 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for... All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You can turn that around and say, how do you know who are the sons of God? Those who are putting sin to death by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are led by the Spirit to kill their sin. 
Now notice the parallel Paul is making in verse 13. Either you die or your sin dies. Or as John Owen stated it, if you don't kill your sin, your sin will kill you. Now the death here spoken of is is death in its fullest theological sense. It's eternal perdition under God's judgment and wrath. You will not escape, verse 13 says, you will not escape judgment and destruction if you cling to your sin. You must kill your sin or you will die forever. That's Romans 8.13. And really, is Paul saying anything different than Jesus himself said back in Mark 9? You remember that? If your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to die forever. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus is saying, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You must kill your sin or it will kill you. Do not think that you can nurse your secret, beloved, pet sin and still enter into heaven. You can't and you won't. Your sin will damn you on the day of judgment. On the other hand, if you put that sin to a violent death, cutting off the hand, the foot, gouging out the eye of sin, you will enter into everlasting life and joy. Now, notice that it is the indwelling spirit who leads you to put sin to death. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. And notice that the spirit exercises this ministry in all whom he indwells. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. So let's make some conclusions here. If you are not killing sin, it's because you do not have the Spirit. Now note this very carefully. I don't want to be misunderstood here. Sin killing takes a lifetime of active engagement against sin. Notice that I did not say... If you have not killed your sin, it is because you do not have the Spirit. That would not be true. Rather, I said, if you are not killing sin, present tense, it is because you do not have the Spirit. There is an all-important difference in the tenses of those two statements. The Spirit does not grant the sons of God immediate victory over sin. Rather, what he does is to so change your relationship to sin such that the sin which you once loved and cherished and coddled has now become your mortal enemy upon which you have declared war and you will fight that war till the day you die. What does the Spirit lead the sons of God to do? 
He leads them to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by walking in love and holiness. And he leads them to wage war upon their sin until they put it to death. That is the dynamic activity of the Holy Spirit in everyone whom he indwells. Okay, But how does he do this? How does he accomplish this? How does the Spirit of God lead the sons of God? Well, again, I see two clues in verses 12 and 13. First, the Spirit creates a sense of obligation to live according to the Spirit. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't close off that sentence. He just sort of leaves the antithesis implied. What we're supposed to read into verse 12 is this. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Rather, we are debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. Now, Paul had said earlier in the chapter, up in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, when we were converted and the Holy Spirit indwelt us, In so doing, he liberated us from our bondage to sin and to death. We are no longer obligated. We're no longer in bondage. We're no longer enslaved to those things which would destroy us. But our liberation from bondage to sin at the same time created a a, a new obligation to live by the Spirit's rule. It's the same thing Paul pointed out back in chapter 6. Our conversion was not a liberation from slavery unto autonomy or self-rule. Rather, it was a, a change of masters. Whereas we were once slaves of sin, now, Paul says in Romans 6, we are slaves of righteousness. Whereas once we were slaves of our flesh... Now, we are servants of the Spirit. Okay, but this obligation that is created in us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is not like an external compulsion. That's not the way the Spirit operates upon the sons of God. He does not turn them into robots and program them and cause them to move however it is that he, he will by some external force of compulsion. Rather... He works from the inside to change our affections and our desires. We were not redeemed from the law and of sin and of death so that we might serve God begrudgingly. Romans 6.17 says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of of righteousness. So this obligation, this sense of debt, which all of the sons of God feel, is not experienced as a grudging bondage. It's experienced as a joyful liberation. You should not think of your debt to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit as, for instance, your debt to the IRS to pay your taxes. That's not the kind of obligation or debt Paul has in mind. Rather, it's like this. 
We once served a master who would have liked to have killed us. We now serve a master who gives us life. So the first way that the Spirit of God leads the sons of God is by forming within them a grateful sense of joyful obligation to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. That is to walk in love and holiness and to put sin to death. The second way the Spirit leads the sons of God is through their active participation. Now, we're just going to touch on this this week. Next week, we're going to dedicate the entire sermon to talking about how we walk by the Spirit. How to actively, consciously rely upon the Spirit's power in order to walk in holiness and love and put to death sin. Today, I just want to point out the fact that Paul expects you to be actively engaged in this process. The two main verbs in verse 13 are both active verbs. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if you live according to the flesh, you are responsible for living in sin. No one's making you do it. Likewise, if the deeds of the body are to die, you must put them to death. No one else can do it for you. So the approach to sanctification is not let go and let God put my sin to death. That's not the way Paul approaches it in verse 13. He says, you who have the spirit, kill your sin. Put it to death. But then he adds three all important words. Only do so by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So so the, the command is not kill your sin. The command rather is, kill your sin by the Spirit. That interplay between the Spirit's activity and your activity is all important. The Spirit is active and you are active. The image in verse 14 of being led by the Spirit is not one in which the Spirit throws a lasso around you and drags you into love and holiness. It is far more dynamic a process than that. The Spirit of God leads the sons of God to do what? To walk in love and holiness, to put to death their sin. He leads the sons of God by willing and working in them as they will and work. All of next week's sermon is designed to unpack the interplay between God's willing and working and your willing and working, which of course comes from Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work... And God works, and God works first. So work out your own salvation. 
kill sin, walk in love with fear and trembling. Why? Because if you don't, you'll die. For God is working in you. How? By the Spirit. To will and to work. That is, to lead you for his good pleasure. Put sin to death and walk in love and holiness. And in so doing, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. But do so by the Spirit. And all of next week is dedicated to those three words. So all who are personally indwelt by the Spirit are powerfully led by the Spirit to presently walk by the Spirit. And they, and only they, will be raised on the last day. So I ask you one more time the same question Paul asked the 12 Ephesian disciples. It's a very important question, isn't it? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And if the answer is no, then I want to leave you with a word of encouragement from Jesus. Luke eleven nine. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What are we asking for? What are we seeking? What are we knocking for? What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If not, ask Him and He will give it.